uh, congregational meeting that's going to be on uh, Sunday, February the 22nd. And I don't know, are there any more of those uh, amendments there out in the back? We have a, an amendment to the Constitution to vote on related to uh, uh, wedding ceremonies, wedding propose, marriage proposal because of the uh, probability that the Supreme Court will uh, mandate a legalization of same-sex marriage and the implications of that for local churches as you, we've seen so many cases around the country in the last few years where uh, homosexual groups have targeted different private businesses uh, to go in and order a wedding cake or order flowers, something of that nature. And then the Christians who own that business have refused to uh, participate because they don't want to endorse a same-sex marriage, and then they're taken to court, and then the p- people are reprimanded by the uh, federal government in one way or another. So um, this is a problem with, with local churches, so we have to take some, uh, make some adjustments, and that's basically what that amendment explains is what those adjustments are going to be. And even though Texas still has a uh, Defense of Marriage Act on the books. One federal judge has found that to be unconstitutional, although his um, his decision has been, well, I don't know what the technical term is, but it's not going to be implemented until this goes on to higher, higher courts. So for the time being, we have, but the handwriting's on the wall. We've been in a negative tra- trajectory and a slide, as um, Robert Bork said, we were slouching to Gomorrah. Now we're sliding to Gomorrah, and we're on a grease skid. So uh, we just have to expect this and try to anticipate what's going to happen. So, so we have to try to envelop this problem as much as we can ahead of time and not try to just, just catch up. So that's, that's the purpose for that amendment. Also, a reminder of the Camperete garage sale on the weekend of uh, May, May 1st through 2nd. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, as is our custom, to make sure that uh, everyone has a chance to uh, recover spiritually, make sure they're walking by the Spirit, so that uh, the time spent together has spiritual significance for now and eternity. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's a great, wonderful privilege we have to gather together around your word, to study your word, to learn what you have revealed to us, to dig deeply into uh, your revelation that we might come to understand not only uh, what the text means at a uh, rather general level, but also to understand the patterns, to understand the principles, to delve into the doctrines that are portrayed and foreshadowed. Uh, within the scope of historical literature and the narrative literature of the Old Testament. Father, help us to recognize this is more than simply a study uh, that has historical uh, dimensions to it, but one that has profound dimensions theologically in terms of our understanding of you, our understanding of who we are, the human race, our understanding of your plan and purpose for the human race, and our understanding of how uh, spiritual absolutes are the ultimate causative effect in human history. We can study sociology and political science and historical trends all day long, 
but we cannot measure the true, genuine cause and effect relationships that change and move history forward unless we understand the spiritual and moral dimension that's laid down in your word, something that can't be measured in a laboratory or in a classroom. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that uh, this would be a time of real challenge for each of us personally. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to begin a study. I've been warning about this, so to speak, for the last uh, six months that we're going to begin a study of First and Second Samuel. We studied First and Second Kings a while back. We studied Judges and Ruth. And in between those two sections of Scripture, we have the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. I chose as a subtitle for the series, The Battle is the Lord's. This comes from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18 when David is fighting Goliath because we all face monsters, giants. We all face overwhelming circumstances in our life, and the only thing that can give us the strength to overcome those uh, horrific circumstances is a realization that it's not by uh, my, not our might or not by power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the only way that we can overcome and address the uh, challenges that we have in life. The battle is the Lord's. And in, within the scope of First and Second Samuel, we're going to see a lot of illustrations spiritually related to individuals, but we're also going to see a lot of implications for politics. First Samuel chapter 7 is one of the greatest chapters related to political science in all of the scripture and is foundational for understanding the role of government and the role of authority uh, as laid down in, in the scripture. So that's going to be a significant chapter. We see a lot related to authority, especially during the time of Saul's latter years when he is chasing and persecuting David 25 different times. Saul seeks to take David's life, and yet David never retaliates. He never seeks to justify any kind of opposition against the authority of Saul, even though Saul is in rank carnality and rebellion against the Lord. David And David has already been anointed by Samuel to be the future king of, of Israel. Uh, David understood that any change was to be done by God and in God's timing. And it wasn't for him to instigate a rebellion or to attempt to overthrow Saul or when he had the opportunity to take Saul's life when he could have been justified. A rationale could be made that David had every right to do so because Saul was unjustly seeking David's life. And many people would say that, that David, and in fact some of his own men, said that David would have been perfectly justified to have taken Saul's life and on two different occasions, and yet David recognized the principle that he, he, he dare not even touch the Lord's anointed. And at the one time that, that he cut the hem off of uh, Saul's robe, David was so overwhelmed by guilt afterwards that he uh, came and made admission of his guilt to Saul and sought his forgiveness, recognizing that that was an act of supreme disrespect to the Lord's anointed. And there's some harsh and hard lessons there for us because we live in a, uh, a country, a democracy, where, where uh, political criticism is a blood sport. And especially when there is an administration in power that is as hostile and antagonistic as it can possibly be to the principles of divine establishment and the principles of God's word. And yet what we learn from Samuel is that there's never any justification for slander and there's and and gossip and maligning, even when um, we think it's justified. And I, I'm it's over the last several years I have noticed that that just because we disagree with the administration, that it seems like conservatives and many Christians will just believe anything that they hear on the Internet or from somebody else uh, against this administration. Now, it may or may not be true, but gossip is uh, communicating, uh, fall, uh, communicating information about someone else when you're not part of the solution or part of the problem, and you may not 
uh, and it may be true and it may not be true. Gossip is not spreading something false. That's, that's slander. That, but it, it could be spreading something that's true, personally true. Now, I think we have every, every uh, right in this government and under our situation to evaluate legal policies, legal philosophies, and things and decisions that are in the public realm that are against the Constitution and run contrary to the laws of this nation or run contrary to the laws of God and divine establishment. But personal attacks that often characterize so many of these kinds of, of uh, attacks are completely off base for anybody who is a, a believer. It, it, it's a, we cross over into this line. It's so easy with email, passing on these emails uh, to people. It's just a, it's e-gossip. Uh, it's e-gossip and Icelander. And, um, and, and Christians should not uh, engage in that. We should always take the high ground. We should always be above the fray in these sorts of things and always focus on that which is demonstrable and uh, uh, objective. But those are some of the lessons that we're going to learn as we go through First Samuel, that even when things are at their darkest, and when we begin in chapter 1 of First Samuel, things are at their darkest in the lowest point in the history of Israel. And it is all because of their rejection of God. And when we end at the end of Second Samuel, we find that things have turned around 180 degrees. Israel is at the, the apex of their prosperity, their, their uh, spiritual strength, and the, their blessing from God. And it's not because of something that they did. They didn't suddenly discover a better political philosophy, a better sociological theory, a superior economic approach. It's because they shifted from disobedience to God to obedience to God. The ultimate causative uh, uh, factor in history is positive volition. It's not suddenly discovering the Austrian School of Economics or the Chicago School of Economics or socialism or communism or whatever the theory of the day is. It's discovering the truth of God's word because when you start with the foundation of God's word and its emphasis on the five divine institutions, then these other things are going to fall out uh, naturally. And we have to come to understand that this is God's world, God's creation, and he's established uh, the laws on, on the basis of which society and politics is part of the structure of society on the basis of how society works. So we're going to look at things in terms of cultural transformation, and that is going to emphasize the grace of God. I've often thought that First and Second Samuel ought to be called the gospel according to Samuel because it starts off with Israel in a condition of absolute spiritual uh, depravity. They are under the heel uh, of the, the, under the domination of the Philistines. They are, as it were, spiritually dead. There is no hope for them. They are fragmented under the uh, moral and spiritual relativism of the period of the judges, as depicted especially in the family of Eli the high priest and his two sons were about as corrupt and self-absorbed and self-serving as any leader could possibly be. And, and yet uh, Israel turns around. It turns around because of godly, righteous leaders like Sam, Samuel and later David. But it is God who is the one who makes the change. It's not because they suddenly discovered some new method, some new theory, some new philosophy. It's that they, the people became obedient to the Lord, and fundamentally their leaders led them in that direction. It's a, it's a factor of, of leadership. So what we're going to do tonight is begin with uh, an introduction. Next time we'll get into an overview, and we're going to be looking at both First and Second Samuel because in the original... Uh, Hebrew manuscript, it was one book. Uh, we saw the same thing with First and Second Kings as well as First and Second Chronicles, is that when uh, this was translated, the Hebrew text was translated into the uh, Greek text in the Septuagint, 
By that time, they were using uh, scrolls, and there was a certain set length of, of, of a scroll, and it was too long to put all of these books onto one scroll, so they split them into, into two. And so then they became known as First and Second Samuel. We'll get into that in just a minute. So when we start off with an introduction to a book, we always need to answer a few questions. Whenever you start to read anything, you need to do an overview, whether you're reading a novel, whether you're reading um, a, a history book, an economics book, a textbook, whatever it might be, fiction or nonfiction, get an understanding of the overview of the book. What is it talking about? And so when we look at any book of Scripture, we always need to do some some diligent work in just understanding some of the background. Typically, this would go under the topic of an introductory Old Testament study or a uh, survey of the Old Testament. So we ask questions like, what's the title of the book? Why is it called this? And that's significant. Here, it wasn't so significant with First Peter. Uh, who wrote Samuel? Who's the author? Uh, when was it written? Uh, when did these events take place? Chronology is such an important factor. We're going to get into so many different issues related to events that you've never studied before, places you've never heard of before, uh, people whose names are hard to pronounce like Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth, and names that you probably would not call your dog uh, because you can't pronounce them. And so we have to learn who these people are and the various uh, battles that uh, take place. There's some tremendous uh, examples of warfare and battles that take place in these in these chapters, and there's a lot to learn there in terms of, of uh, uh, personal courage and trust in the Lord because ultimately he's the one who controls the battle. Uh, to whom was this written? Uh, any, any book of the Bible, we need to address that question. Who was the original intended audience uh, we need to address the question, what's the backdrop? We're so many centuries removed from this. The, the, the events covered in 1 Samuel basically come from, go from about 1100, maybe 1104 with the, the or 1105 with the uh, prayer of Hannah, Sam, Samuel's mother in 1 Samuel 1, up to just prior to the death of, uh, of David and about 970. So we're looking at a period of about 130, 140 years that are covered roughly 1,000 B.C. So we're talking about a period 3,000 years ago in a world that was, that was quite different. The technology was quite different. In fact, one of the things that we learn in uh, 1 Samuel is the importance of understanding arms control. Uh, the importance of understanding arms control because the Philistines had managed to advance into the Iron Age, but the Israelites were still in the Bronze Age. And we're told in 1 Samuel that the Philistines refused to allow blacksmiths to operate within Israel. It was gun control. It was a Iron Age, Bronze Age form of gun control, but it was Gun control, it was arms control. How do you keep a population into subjection? You prevent them from having the latest technology to defend themselves. And so the Philistines would not allow anyone who had skill with iron, any, any blacksmiths to function so that the Jews had to bring their, their, their metal, uh, plows and other tools to the Philistines in order to get them sharpened and in order to get them repaired. And very few uh, uh, Israelite soldiers had iron weapons. So you have a whole situation where you have an army that is uh, armed with bronze weapons going against an army that is armed with iron weapons. And it's a great lesson there on uh, the dangers of arms control, and it's a great time to study the importance of the Second Amendment. And then um, we'll look at what the central message is in in uh, in these books. And as I pointed out earlier, I think the central message revolves around the grace of God that only God can turn things around in our lives. When things are an absolute mess, it's only the grace of God that can transform things from cursing to blessing. 
And then finally, the final question is just to get an idea of some of the key themes and characteristics uh, of the book. So the first question we're going to address is what's the title of this book? In the English Bible, it's called Samuel, First and Second Samuel. It gets this because in the Septuagint, it divided these into two separate books. It was originally one book called Samuel uh, in, in the Hebrew. The Septuagint divided it up into two, but it looked at these four books that we refer to as First and Second Samuel and First uh, and Second Kings as First Kingdoms, Second Kingdoms, Third Kingdoms, and Fourth Kingdoms. Those are the titles uh, in, the, uh, in the Septuagint. The Latin Vulgate was the first to entitle uh, the first two books as Samuel and to identify them as, as Samuel, and it was divided, as I said earlier, due to the length of the scrolls. Now, the English title for Samuel is used because the first significant leader in the book is Samuel. First Samuel revolves around three key people, Samuel, Saul, and David. If you've got that, you've got your outline for First Samuel. It's, it's biographical, basically. It's, it's a Samuel, Saul, and David. And then once you get that down, then you can uh, uh, divide up and understand all of the other chapters. So Samuel is significant. Because he is the, he's both priest and judge. And he's the last of the judges in the period of the judges. Now, a judge, uh, the, the English word judge doesn't convey the same idea as the, the Old Testament concept of a judge. The Old Testament concept of a judge was sort of a, a cross uh, between uh, uh, a military leader, a spiritual leader, and a, a a civic leader in in some cases, in in a few cases they would make decisions in difficult cases and diff- and settle disagreements between people. But when we look at the book of Judges, and we'll need to go back and do a couple of overviews on the book of Judges because that helps us understand the culture of the time. When we look at that, we see that they primarily seem to have a military function to deliver or rescue Israel from military opponents and in some cases those who had brought them into subjection uh, for a, a number of years. So this is the, uh, this is the reason uh, Samuel is important. He is the last judge in the time of the judges, and he is arguably the greatest of all the judges, but he's also a failure. And this is one of the things that we see in studying many books of the Bible is that the great spiritual leaders also are presented with all of their flaws and all of their failures. And Samuel, uh, not unlike Eli, has, has sons that are not following the Lord and are not following him. And so when the people, when they get down to 1 Samuel 6 and 7, the people look at Samuel's sons and they say, well, we don't have... Anyone who can take Samuel's place, we want to have a king like everybody else. And what do you hear there? What you should hear is they're still operating on a lack of trust for God. They're still operating on a moral relativism, which was the real problem uh, during the period of the judges. So Samuel is both a priest and a judge, but he's also something else. He's the first prophet Following Moses, he's really the first prophet taking the office of prophet uh, in the in the Old Testament, and he will anoint the first two of Israel's kings. He will anoint Saul, and then he will anoint uh, David. So he also stands as sort of a type of Christ. Now that phrase, type of Christ, is sort of an antiquated phrase. It means a, an example or, or a foreshadowing of the person of Christ from the Greek word tupas, meaning a shadow image of something, because Samuel was prophet, judge, and priest. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. So Samuel is prophet, priest, and judge. He's not a king. So he foreshadows uh, these roles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I um, 
pointed out earlier, the first thing we need to address is what's the uh, who's the what's the title for the book, and um, one a couple of other things we need to point out is that in the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, Samuel was part of the former prophets. Remember, the Hebrew Bible is divided into three sections. The first section is the Law or the Torah. Torah actually means as its core semantic meaning. It means instruction or teaching. We think of it in a more technical sense of law in terms of the codification of the Mosaic law. But Torah, in its core meaning, has that idea of instruction. It is teaching the people how how they should live. And so that's the first division. The second division, that's the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The next division, the next division has to do with the prophets, the prophets. And this goes from Je- uh, Joshua all the way through uh, through Ezekiel, ex- excluding in, in the uh, English Bible, excluding uh, Esther and um, uh, Esther and First and Second Chronicles, that comes under the category of the writings and Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and Lamentations. These are all going in the category of the writings. But you have your former prophets, which are Joshua, Judges. Ruth was in the writings. Ruth wasn't with the prophets. You have Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And then you have uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. That's how it's organized in the Hebrew Bible. So Samuel is part of the prophets called the former prophets. You have the former prophets, and you have the latter prophets. Latter prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. In the English Bible, the English Bible is arranged like the Septuagint arranged things so that you have your uh, the history of Israel in the first section from Genesis through um, uh, Esther tells the history of the Jewish people. Those are mostly narrative-type uh, historical books. And so Samuel is in the historical book section in the way that, that things are organized in the English Bible. So we look at the, we've looked at the title. Now, who wrote Samuel? Well, you all are going to say, well, Samuel wrote Samuel. Isn't that obvious? Well, not exactly, because Samuel doesn't survive First Samuel. So who wrote the rest of it? Samuel dies around 1 Samuel chapter 22 or so. I don't remember exactly, somewhere in there. Uh, so who writes the rest of, uh, uh, of Samuel? Who writes into uh, uh, 2 Samuel and into this? Uh, Samuel dies before David becomes king. So we have to address this issue of who wrote, who wrote Samuel. Well, according to the... Jewish Talmud, Baba Bathra 14b to 15a, indicates that it was Samuel. But as I pointed out, Samuel couldn't write the whole thing, so others have suggested that Samuel probably wrote the first 14 chapters of Samuel. He might have written a little more. These are just guesses. And then Gad, who is the next major prophet, would have written 1 Samuel 15 through 2 Samuel 8. And then the prophet, the main prophet at that point, following Gad, is Nathan, who would have written Second Samuel nine to twenty-four. Nathan probably lived into the first two or three years of Solomon's Solomon's reign. So the uh, uh, the authorship would have been mixed. Now we don't know that for sure. One thing we do know about Samuel is that Samuel. Uh, authored some other works according to 1 Samuel 10.25 and 1 Chronicles 29.29. That's 1 Samuel 10.25 and 1 Chronicles 29.29. And according to 1 Samuel 10.5, he had a school of prophets. So there's a group of men who had the gift of being a prophet who worked together. And some of them had short-term ministries. Some had other more significant ministries. We're told about uh, an unnamed prophet who confronted Eli early on in the book. So there were these other uh, less well-known, even unnamed prophets who who were operating. And as part of that school, they were keeping a record and they were keeping a history uh, of Israel at that time, and we know that there are uh, references 
within the text of Scripture to other writings that the writers of Samuel and Kings uh, would draw information from. So under the guidance and direction of God the Holy Spirit, they had access to these various historical records and chronicles, and then they would write sort of an editorialized view of history. The historical books of the Bible are not history per se. It's not just stories. They are stories with a purpose to teach various doctrinal points. They are uh, God's interpretation of history, especially in light of what he said in Deuteronomy and in light of the blessings and cursings part of the Mosaic Covenant. So as we read through the historical books of the Old Testament, you really see the outworkings of, of the Mosaic Covenant and how God blesses Israel when they're obedient and how he brings judgment upon Israel when they are uh, disobedient. So uh, we come to the next topic. We look at the title, Who Wrote Samuel, When It Was Written, some people suggest a late date of 722. Now, that's pretty late. There's a few people, it's called the Deuteronomic School. There's a, there's a few more liberal scholars who try to date everything after the exile or in the middle of the exile. Uh, but there's some real problems with that, and most, most conservatives and evangelicals reject that. Some suggest that, that it reaches its final form around 722, which is when the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, in the process of collecting and bringing together the, the, the books into their final form, we don't really know how that process uh, took place or how long it took place. There are hints within the uh, scope of the writings of these books that, that uh, for example, you'll read phrases that say something like, as it is today. Uh, and which indicates that the writer is pointing out that if you go to such and such a location, you can see that something is still there at the time uh, when it was written. Sometimes the, these uh, later prophets, as they collected things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would insert sort of editorial comments. They're not just their opinion. This is under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit pointing out the divine interpretation of these events. So some suggest a late date at the time of the defeat of the northern kingdom. Others argue for the time of the, at the time of the division of the kingdom, around 930 uh, B.C., when the northern kingdom is ripped away from the southern kingdom and you have the ten northern tribes go into a tax rebellion against the uh, specifically primarily the tribe of Judah and against uh, Solomon's uh, son Rehoboam because he wanted to impose such heavy taxes uh, upon the people. So this would make sense for some. It's based on uh, what appears to be an identification of Judah, uh, the tribe of Judah, as a distinct uh, distinct entity in several passages such as uh, uh, 1 Samuel 11.8, 1752, uh, 1 Samuel 18.16 and 27.6, that, that it's written at a time when Judah seems to be separate from the northern kingdom. The weakness with that view is that 2 Samuel 5 also seems to treat Judah as a separate entity even when David is king and the kingdom is being united. So you can't really rely on that. Others will try to take the date around 960, which is just after Solomon became king, Part of the significance of, of, of what goes on in, in Samuel is that it's presenting a defense of the Davidic monarchy that, that why God replaced uh, Saul and Saul's dynasty with David and his family and justifying the descent of the line through Solomon. And so some suggest that this occurred in 960. Solomon ascended the throne in 971, so this would have been just after Solomon became uh, became king, which is covered in the first couple of chapters in 1 Kings. But most conservatives suggest that, David's, that it occurred during David's reign since the text doesn't mention David's death at all. It ends before David dies. So the idea is that since it doesn't mention David's death, that it was reached 
about 98% of its final form before David uh, David died. So it's often thought that, that these other prophets, Gad and Nathan, were also involved in uh, recording these events and in bringing the uh, this record to its final uh, to its final form. Now, when we look at the next question, when did these events take place? We have to put this within its historical context. When we were in Israel back in November, we had a guide for one day. You've heard me mention him before. We saw a little film that he did on on uh, uh, on the Lamb, uh, Joel Kramer. Joel made. Um, uh, made an interesting observation. I mean, Joel, at an earlier stage in his career, pastored a church north of Salt Lake City, and about probably about 10 or 12 years ago, he was producing some videos related to uh, Mormonism, trying to educate and instruct Christians on how to evangelize uh, Mormons and to understand some of the problems with Mormonism. And Joel kept making these, these an interesting point when we were looking at so many places that you can go to the to the to the land of Israel, and you can go to Jericho, and you can go to Jerusalem, and you can go to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal and Shechem, and you can go to Samaria, and you can go to uh, the Galilee and Capernaum and uh, Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. You can go to all these places because they happened at a particular geographical location at a particular time in history, and you can study all of that. But you pick up the Book of Mormon, you can't go to any of those places. We don't know where they are. There's never any archaeological evidence that any of those places ever existed or any of those people ever existed. But the Bible's located in a specific time and a specific place with specific people who, up to a point, are historically attested. Now, just because they're not historically attested doesn't mean they didn't exist. It just means we haven't uncovered evidence. In fact, many liberal scholars rejected the idea that David was anything more than a legend until about 10 or 15 years ago when they d- discovered a, an inscription referencing the house of David. Then all of a sudden they think, well, maybe David was a real person after all. Uh, nothing that's been discovered in archaeology has ever contradicted or disproven anything in the Bible. So we need to look at a little timeline to understand when these events took place. So here's a timeline starting from the left and moving to the right, because remember we're in, uh, we're in B.C., so we're starting with bigger numbers and moving to smaller numbers. The benchmark date for Israel is 1446, which is when the Exodus occurred in 1446, and this is when they they left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, went to Mount Sinai. How long were they at Mount Sinai? Anybody know? Test time. How many of you have been reading your Bible and paying attention? One year. They're at Sinai one year. They celebrated the first Passover as they got out of Egypt. And just before they left Sinai, they celebrated the second Passover. So they're there a year. And then they left to go to... Uh, the promised land, and they stopped at a place called Kadesh Barnea down in the Negev. And from there they sent out the, the uh, 12 spies. And the spies came back because they didn't understand their mission. They misinterpreted God. They thought God said, go and see if we can take the land. And God said, no, go and spy out the land that I'm going to give to you. So they failed to properly interpret the promise that was clearly there, that God had already given them the land. And because they failed to interpret God literally, they came back scared to death. Ten of the twelve came back scared to death because they, they were giants in the land. There were many people in the land, and they had fortified cities. And they said, ah, we can't do it. And, and so God said because of their lack of faith, that generation would not be allowed to enter into the promised land. So they spent how many years wandering around in the wilderness? Thirty-eight. Okay, just wanted to make sure that you're paying attention to Scripture. The, the total is 40 years, but remember they already spent a year where? They spent a year at Sinai, and they spent another year uh, at the end traveling around before they got, uh, they, they got in. So from 1446, 
when they came out of Egypt until 1406 when they cross the Jordan and enter into the promised land, you have uh, 40 years. Then there's about six or seven years covering the period of the conquest, and that's covered in the first part of Joshua, and then they have to make a lot of administrative decisions. And that's sort of the second part of Joshua. When they're, That's that section you get kind of bored with when you're reading through because it's like reading title deeds because that's exactly what it is. That God is describing what part of the land and where the borders and boundaries are between each of the tribal allotments. And then from uh, 1399 to 1360, you have a period of consolidation. This is basically summarized in the first chapter of Judges. And there's, there's approximately a 300-year period known as the time of the Judges. And this is a time when Israel goes through this cyclical pattern where they're disobedient to God, and then God brings discipline upon them, and then they cry out for a deliverer, and God sends a deliverer and rescues them. And then we go through it all over again, teaching us that that basically we want God to get us out of trouble, but we don't want God to keep us out of trouble. We only want to go to Bible class when things aren't going so well in our life, but when things are going pretty well, we don't really need God. He'll, 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 he'll be handy when we need him. So we kind of treat him like he's a good luck charm, a talisman, a rabbit's foot, and we just hope that, that when it comes time to rub the rabbit's foot in the right way, that God will do what he's supposed to do. So we have the period of the judges, and things just get cyclically worse. The period of the judges starts with the first judge, whose name was Othniel, and he becomes Caleb's son-in-law. And nothing negative is said about Othniel or his wife, Oxa. Uh, she is treated uh, with respect. She treats her father with respect. They, they honor one another, and she demonstrates wisdom. It's very short vignette on Othniel and Oxa, but we see a woman who depicts some of the attributes of the godly woman in, in Proverbs chapter 31. A lot to say about the role of males and females in a regressive, degenerate society and what happens in the book of Judges. If you've never listened to my series on Judges, you need to do that because as the Israelites get more and more degenerate, you get into role reversal and the women become masculinized and the men become feminized and you have role reversal. And one of the byproducts of that kind of pagan role reversal is uh, sexual abuse and abuse of women. And so you come to the end of Judges and you have a couple of uh, uh, episodes that are appendices tacked on at the end of the book and you see how horribly they treated, uh, they treated women, how sexist they became because the Bible teaches that God created males and females equally in God's image and they have different roles but they're to be honored and respected. But when you shift into paganism, that reverses polarity and you have the breakdown in, uh, once you have the breakdown in role distinctions, biblical role distinctions, and you no longer understand biblical masculinity and biblical femininity, then you end up in a complete uh, collapse of both marriage and the family, which are the, 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 which is the foundation, the pillars of any stable society. That's exactly where we are today. And this is where the situation ends up at the beginning of Samuel. And we see how, how even though Elimelech um, uh, uh, honors his wife Hannah, he's got a second wife. This is not honoring to his wife. And so we see that, that marriage has been perverted and you have uh, uh, polygamy and you see how the role of the, both the man and the woman have, have broken down uh, during this period of the judges. So we have this period of the judges and the last four judges are Jephthah, Samson, Eli, and Samuel. Now a lot of people don't understand this when you go through the book of the judges but the judges go from bad to worse, and they're described warts and all. The only one that has no warts is, is the first one, Othniel, and the last one, which is Samson in the book of the Judges, Eli and Samuel are both in First Samuel. The last judge, who is Samson, 
There's nothing good said about him. He's a womanizer. He has a tremendous disrespect for his parents. He has disrespect for God. There's not anything that he does that has any spiritual significance whatsoever. Uh, he's disobedient to God. He disobeys his Nazarite vow uh, time and time again. And it's not until he's captured and has his eyes put out by the Philistines that he finally decides, well, maybe he needs to obey God. And he has his one moment of triumph right at the end when he destroys uh, the, the temple of Dagon where they've held him as a, as a captive. So that's Samson. The next to last judge is Jephthah. Uh, Jephthah is uh, a little bit better than Samson. But he is the son of a prostitute. He grows up on the on the uh, what we would call the uh, east bank over in Jordan, the Trans Jordan area, and he is a brigand. Uh, he doesn't know a whole lot of doctrine. He doesn't know a whole lot about the Bible, which is typical of some of these uh, some of these judges. And he enters into a bargain with God. God has already commissioned him to defeat the Ammonites, who are who are uh, oppressing. Uh, Israel from the east. The Ammonites had their had their capital in a place called Rabbah, which today it's known as what? Ammon, the capital of Jordan. Okay, so uh, they're uh, they're they're coming from that direction. They're defeating. They're oppressing the Israelites, and in comes the this brigand, this land pirate. You know, he's just sort of one step removed from a terrorist, but he knows how to win battles. And he's a believer, but he really doesn't have a whole lot going for him other than that. And he decides that the way to really make sure that God's going to give him victory in the battle is that he's going to make a deal with God that he'll sacrifice whatever comes out of the uh, of the door of his house to, to meet him when he comes home, that he'll sacrifice to, that to God as, a, as an ola, as a burnt offering. Now, in our studies on the, the birth of Christ, and the manger. Remember, I pointed out that in the ancient Near East for, for hundreds of years, the, the people built their houses. This is seen archaeologically. They would have sort of an inner uh, courtyard and inner stable where they would bring the animals inside the house in a special area, uh, especially during inclement weather. You don't want your animals dying out in the cold. It gets cold over there. There's snow again this year in Jerusalem. So you would bring these animals, your, your, your most prized possessions, inside the house. And so Jephthah would have thought that when he came home, maybe a, a sheep or a goat uh, or, or, or a calf would come out of the house. But his daughter comes out. And the scripture says he did to her exactly what he vowed. He offered her as a human sacrifice to God. Some people try to get around that because they're too squeamish. They don't understand that, that what the writer of Judges is teaching is that each progressive gener generation is getting more and more like the Canaanites. When you start off, there's a clear distinction between the Israelites and the, and the Canaanites, but by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, which is the same basic time period at the beginning of Samuel, you basically have a culture that is more depraved and more pagan than the Canaanites. They're out Canaaniting the pagans because they've rejected God. And that happens to every culture. So you have this period of the judges. And the way I have those names staggered is that Jephthah and Samson basically overlap. Samson's uh, judgeship, he's focused on the oppression from the Philistines, which is down towards the Gaza Strip. You have Gaza and Gath and Ekron and Ashkelon. These are the areas of the, of the Philistines. And then uh, Jephthah is across the Jordan. Eli is in the center of the hill country in Samaria, as is Samuel. And they overlap one another. So they're very close in time, something you don't always get from reading the Scripture. And so that's the period of the judges, and then this is going to be, period, uh, be followed by the period of the united monarchy, uh, Saul, the first king, David, the second king, Solomon's the third king. I always like to ask people a little trivia question. Who's the first, king and first person anointed king and crowned king of Israel? Abimelech. Good. I'm glad some of you have listened. It's not Saul. First, in Judges chapter 9, Abimelech, 
whose name means my father is king, is, uh, uh, is anointed crowned king by the citizens of Shechem. Now, I didn't say who was the first person God anointed to be king. I said who was the first person crowned king of Israel. And it says in the text that the men of Shechem crowned Abimelech king of Israel. Okay, now here's our time, time, uh, time slide here. Jephthah's dates are roughly 1150 to 1100 uh, B.C. Samuel, according to the chronology I base this on, is born about 1115. Others will put it maybe a little later at 1105, but somewhere right around 1105 to 1115. So he, he is born before Jephthah dies. Uh, Samson is born in 1123 when Jephthah is about 25 years of age. And he dies in 1084. So Samson's life clearly overlaps that of, of, uh, of Samuel. Uh, Saul is going to become king in uh, 1050. Okay? So that's only 34 years after Samson dies. It's important to understand these are very close together and, and they overlap. So Samson lives from 1115 to 10. Uh, 1020. Saul lives from 1075 to 1011, which is when David David becomes king. So you have the Ammonite oppression to the uh, to the east. You have the Philistine oppression to the south. And when you get to the end of the book of Judges, Samson is the only judge that doesn't deliver the people. The book of Judges is very depressing. It ends on a horrific note. A horrible note. There's there's civil war with Benjamin, so that at the end of Judges, you're just looking at the survivors of Benjamin. You say, these this is the most spiritually depraved tribe in the entire country. Where did Saul come from? Saul comes from Benjamin. God's making a point that didn't happen by chance. He chose someone for Benjamin for a particular point. So we'll see this slide again, but it helps us to see the connection between the key players uh, at the beginning of uh, 1 Samuel and the last two judges in the book of Judges. Now we come to the next question, which is, uh, to whom was this written? To whom was this written? Well, most agree that 1 Samuel, that Samuel was written to the generation of Jews in Solomon's time. It is giving them a divine viewpoint picture of where they came from out of that low point when they bottomed out during the period of the judges to the high point with David to teach the people that the only way that your culture is going to survive is if you're walking with God. If you're not walking with the Lord, if you're disobedient to the law of God, the instruction of God, then your culture is going to implode. It's a, 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 when it implodes, it becomes weak, and then foreign aggressors uh, will dominate. So the book was written to teach. Uh, probably, part of it may have been written to teach uh, Solomon uh, about the importance of obedience to the covenant, that that would bring prosperity and blessing both individually uh, as well as nationally. Individually, it would bring an abundance of children. The children would be uh, spirit, spiritually positive, and there would be a longevity of the kings. Nationally, it would bring uh, success, prosperity, economic prosperity. Uh, they would have victory over their enemies, and they would extend their sphere of, of uh, influence. The next question has to do with the backdrop and understanding uh, the, the backdrop, and primarily uh, we understand this in light of what I've already taught. It's the spiritual dimension that's the most important. Judges 17.6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. No king in Israel is sort of a double entendre. It indicates there's no physical king in Israel, but the real king, according to the Mosaic law, was God. It's a theocracy. God is to rule over Israel in the Mosaic law. God is the ultimate ruler, and where the leaders would meet God is at the, at the tabernacle uh, with the priest, and God was king, but they had rejected there's no human king, but they had rejected God as their king and substituted 
uh, their own opinions. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there's, there's no clearer indictment of our nation today than that statement. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And the end result of that is, is spiritual anarchy, moral anarchy, and that leads to economic and political anarchy. Everything will fall apart unless you have what? Either two th- one of two things. Either there is a massive spiritual shift and the people turn back to God, or you have to have a strong man authority to come in and establish a dictatorship or tyranny or a monarchy. Because if the people are behaving irresponsibly and like juveniles without any respect for authority to prevent absolute chaos, somebody has to be the adult in the room. And historically, this is what happens. If the people refuse uh, to exercise their freedom responsibly, which is where this nation is, then you only have two options, either turn back to God and grow up and become mature, or uh, somebody will make you do it through the force uh, of government. Judges 21-25 and the, says the same thing. There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When God the Holy Spirit repeats himself, with two verses that are identical, he really wants you to pay attention to that point. So that's the backdrop for understanding the situation. At this time, the Philistines are the strong power. The Egyptians are weak. What destroyed the Egyptian monarchy, the Egyptian hegemony? What destroyed it was the Exodus, the ten plagues. Wiped them out economically, militarily, politically so that Egypt isn't mentioned again in the Bible until you get into the period after the division of, the, of, of Israel into the northern and southern kingdom, roughly around 930, 940 B.C. So for roughly 500 years, the Bible is silent about Egypt. Egypt dominates up until the, the, uh, ex, up until the exodus. And it will dominate and be a major player against Israel again after 940. But in the meantime, they're, they're silent. So Egypt is trying to reestablish their, their power and their economy and everything down in Africa. Uh, you have uh, uh, the Assyrians have risen uh, partially once, but they got pushed back by the Arameans. And so they haven't risen on the horizon yet. Uh, and so you're left with sort of a power vacuum uh, south of the Hittite Empire, which is in modern Turkey, uh, south of Syria, and it's in that vacuum that that David rises and Solomon, and they extend the empire. The other great empire that's, that's taking place at this time are the Phoenicians, entire and Sidon, but their focus is maritime. They control the Mediterranean. It was long before it was a Roman lake. It was a Phoenician lake, and they controlled it and sent their uh, traders out. And so as David came up, he entered into an alliance with Hiram of Tyre, and David controls all of the land routes, all of the interstates going through the Middle East. He's in control of, and everything on the sea is controlled by Hiram, the king of Tyre. And between the two of them, they dominate the world. And, and so there is a, 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 a peace, like the Pax Romana later on. There is a peace in the world uh, to some degree at that particular time. So that gives us a bit of, a, of an introduction. Next time I'll bring out some of the theological themes as we go through a flyover of both First and Second Samuel. So I'm going to try to cover... I've covered Revelation in 30 minutes or 45 minutes, but to cover... First and Second Samuel, in in one hour, it will be a bit of a challenge. So, but if you all you have to do is remember, basically, it's Samuel, Saul, David, and then you see the establishment of David in Hebron, and then you see the rise and, and solidification of David's kingdom, and then the collapse of David's kingdom due to his carnality in the second half. You've got that. You've got everything. You can figure it all out from there. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these uh, uh, various issues related to understanding Samuel and uh, make, help us to understand that the purpose for this is to challenge us spiritually, to recognize that the only way we can have 
experience your blessing in our life is when we are uh, walking by the Spirit, when we're walking in obedience to your word, and that your grace always provides us with what we need in order to reverse course when we have been in disobedience and in rebellion against you. That this is, this is a, a book that's a tremendous manifestation of your grace and your goodness, but that we have to understand that the battle is not ours, the battle is yours, and our life is the battle, and that we are constantly in a battle, and we must learn to trust you as we face all the different Goliaths of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.